Uh, my name's Phil. I've just been here for a few weeks now as the new assistant pastor. I've not met many of you yet. I hope I can meet one or two more of you in the uh, the breakout rooms after the service. Now we're, we're picking up the second of a two-part sermon series on Job. Uh, I, like I said last week, this is a, a really deep and complicated and difficult book. If you didn't manage to listen to last week's, I'd really recommend listening back online. That might help answer some questions about this passage. I'm going to move fairly quickly today um, to focus on one thing. So let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we, we come to your word with many questions and often with doubts and fears. But we pray, Father, that you would help us this morning we pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to see more clearly your glorious love for us in Jesus. Amen. Last week, I began with a question. The question was this, could you love God? If he took away all of his good gifts to you, could you still love him? Now, this week, I want to turn that question around. Do you think that God still loves you when he takes away or withholds gifts? Do you think he still loves you? For example, if you started to come down with a dry cough tomorrow, if that cough became incessant, if you tested positive for COVID-19, and if you ended up a few days later in hospital on a ventilator fighting for your life, would you still think that God loved you? Now, just to take a step back for a moment, Last week, we saw that the big question underlying the book of Job was this. Could Job or anyone else love God entirely for God's own sake, regardless of what gifts he gives or takes away? Is God worthy of such love? That was the question which was asked in heaven, behind the scenes, if you like. But at least from what we're told in the book of Job, Job never found out about that conversation between God and Satan in heaven. Job never found out why he was so sorely tested. And instead, one of Job's biggest questions throughout the book was this. Did God still love him? That's why I'm asking you. Do you think God still loves you when he takes away or withholds his gifts? Job thought God loved him. In chapter 29 and verses 1 to 6, he speaks of the days when God watched over him, when God's lamp shone upon his head, and when God's intimate friendship blessed his house. God was with him. Or so it seemed. But does God bankrupt those he loves? 
Does God take away the children of those he loves? Does God send plagues on those he loves? Surely God must hate Job if this is how he treats him. And as the book continues, that is certainly what Job fears. Worse still, in his pain and confusion, Job starts thinking that God is punishing him for some kind of unnamed crime that he never actually committed. And by denying Job the opportunity to defend himself, to prove his innocence, to argue his case, God has denied Job justice, he thinks. God is unjust, it seems. And this is perhaps what hurts Job the most. It's easy to conclude when we suffer like this, isn't it? That, that, that God must hate us, that he must be unjust. Why would a loving God allow such things to happen, particularly to people who love him? Well, this is where we need to come back to chapters one and two. Because God pulls back the curtain and shows us behind the scenes because there is a different reality that we need to see. God most certainly does love Job. God could not be more delighted in Job. When God speaks of Job in chapter one, verse eight, we're meant to hear pure delight in his voice. Think of, of something like an ecstatic father who's just seen his son score a hat-trick at the Saturday morning football game. Hear the excitement in his voice. Did you see him? Did you see him score that goal? And now think of that with God. Have you considered my servant Job? Not many people get called God's servant in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, King David do, the great leaders of God's people. Israel does as a nation, the nation that God chose as his treasured possession. Jesus is referred to the, as, referred to as the mysterious servant of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 49 onwards. But the title is not handed out lightly. And Job is not even an Israelite. So for God to call him my servant is a very special privilege. God really delights in Job. And what about the rest of verse 8? God says there is no one on earth like Job. He says he is blameless and upright. God finds nothing deceitful or false in Job. The name Job is like sweet music in God's ears. God loves Job. And it is in this great love that God allows Satan to afflict Job. Last week we saw that God is too lovely in himself to let Satan's cynicism stand. 
but God also loves his servant too much to let his Satan's cynicism stand. Now, why is Satan cynical? It's because he thinks Job only worships God because God's given him an easy ride in life. Satan thinks that Job is only in it for the health or wealth and the blessings on his family. And because Satan hates God, he longs to, to, show, God, to show Job up as a fraud and to snatch Job away from God, to swallow him up and deprive God of any reason to boast. But God knows Job's heart. And he sees something beautiful there. Job is not perfect, but God sees the true faith that he has kindled in Job's heart. And God sees the righteousness, the love and the good deeds that spring from Job's faith, which you can read about in chapters 29 and 31. Have a look at them after the service. God delights in Job. And because God delights in him, he finds Satan's cynicism and slander and his murderous desires against Job deeply offensive. Again, it's a little like a loving parent might if, if their child has just been called a waste of space by a teacher. It's not enough for God to simply tell Satan to shut up and beat it. He wants to give Job total victory over Satan. He wills for Job to prove Satan utterly wrong and to silence him by standing firm in the test. God longs to vindicate Job and that is exactly what happens. Throughout the book, Job steadfastly refuses to curse God despite having many wobbles, many doubts and fears about God's character along the way. And in chapter 42, God vindicates Job. He publicly restores him. He declares Job's innocence to his doubting friends. He, he restores him with more wealth than he had before. He gives him 10 more children and he gives him such long life that he even sees his great grandchildren. God vindicates the faith of his servant because he loves him far too much to let Satan's cynicism stand. Now, there are some massively important things we need to take away from this. Firstly, there is a kind of suffering that God's people sometimes experience, which is not discipline. It is not correction for sin, and it is not primarily meant to teach us something. Of course, that kind of suffering does come, and we should embrace it because Hebrews, Hebrews 12 says that through his discipline, God is showing us that he loves us and treats us as his children. But there is another kind of suffering too. The kind of suffering that Job experienced a kind of suffering which is not in response to unrepented sin in our lives. A kind of suffering which seems to have no obvious meaning, in which we can't see any good. 
And when that suffering comes, Christians must remember Job. We must remember so that we don't doubt God's love for us. We must remember that, that there is a spiritual battle going on for our souls because Satan would love to swallow us up, to snatch us away from God like he wanted to with Job. And we must remember that God so, so loves us that he wants to prove the genuineness of our faith against Satan's lies. He wants to give us the victory over Satan and silence him and beat down Satan under our feet. He wants to uphold the honour of his beloved children. It's not, uh, it's, it's worth saying, it's not quite the same situation for us as it was for Job. Because of Jesus, wonderfully, Satan has been thrown down from heaven. You can look this up later in uh, Luke chapter 10 and in Revelation chapter 12, if you'd like. Um, in his life, in his death and resurrection, Jesus won victory after victory over Satan. And we'll see more of that in two weeks when we return to Mark's gospel. But because of Jesus' victories, Satan has been thrown down from heaven. So God the Father will no longer hear Satan's accusations against his people, against his servants. Even though Satan might be right, even though we may be far less righteous than Job, even though we probably do love God a lot of the time more for the gifts he gives than for his own sake. God will not hear Satan's accusations. He, God has already taken away the charges against us and he has nailed them to the cross of Christ. For every believer, those charges are paid, spent, done and gone. And with Jesus reigning from the throne room of heaven, Satan's final defeat is utterly certain. But there is still a spiritual battle for our souls. As the Apostle Peter wrote, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But although he still attacks us, the outcome is even more certain for Christians now than it was for Job then. Because God has spoken more explicitly about it. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 to 7, we read that we may suffer grief in all kinds of trials now. We may suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of our faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, so that our faith may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. For every follower of Jesus, this is the truth. The devil may pounce upon us like a ravening lion, wanting to destroy us, to afflict us, and to prove our faith to be a sham. But God has already determined 
that these trials will prove the genuineness of our faith. It's a foregone conclusion. And why does he want to prove our faith genuine? So that he can lavish praise, glory and honour on us when Jesus Christ returns. Now, like me, um, you might be thinking, whoa, hang on a minute. Shouldn't it be us giving praise and honour and glory to God? Like, surely we don't deserve to have him praise and honour us. And you're right, we don't. We are only drawn to Christ by God's grace. We are too stubborn to come on our own. And we only persevere in the Christian life by his grace, upholding us. And we continue to sin every day. We don't deserve praise, glory and honour. Yet we know from the Gospels that faithful, faithful service in Jesus' kingdom will be rewarded in heaven. We know that if we are unashamed of Jesus in this life, he will be unashamed to call us his own before the whole host of heaven. A great honour. And on that day, we know that Jesus will praise each of his people with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, Peter doesn't say whether the praise, glory and honour will be directed to us or God. But in context, it's our faith that God is proving. And so it must be first and foremost our faith that he wants to honour. How, how lavish and generous is the love of our God that he wants to give us praise, glory and honour that we couldn't possibly deserve. And how much more will our praise and glory and honour abound to God in return because of this? God loves his servants too much to let Satan's cynicism stand. And that means you, if you are a follower of Jesus. Do you, do you realise that? When your suffering appears most meaningless and most unfair, do you realise how much God loves you? In the midst of the spiritual battle for your soul, do you realise that God is bringing about a glorious vindication for you? I just want to finish by drawing two applications from this. Firstly, very simply, if you would not call yourself a Christian, I just want to ask you, why would you not want to follow a God who loves his people this much? Why would you not want to follow a God who desires to lavish such undeserved praise and honour on his people simply because he is that generous? Sure, it's risky. 
The book of Job testifies, and I will testify to how painful it can be. But when did the best things in life, the most profoundly wonderful things, the most worthwhile things, ever come without risk? For believers, I want to apply this at the level of the church. God doesn't call us to do the Christian life as lone rangers. Lone rangers are dead rangers when we face an enemy such as Satan. God calls us into his family, into the local church, because we need one another to persevere through suffering. And we need the local church in a very particular way when it is the kind of suffering which Job experienced. With this kind of suffering where there is no apparent good purpose, where it feels like God has turned on us, it is partly through the local church that God reassures us of his love for us. Job might have expected that reassurance to come from his friends, from Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. They, they definitely had the right idea when they set out to comfort him and sympathize with him at the end of chapter two. But they made a big mistake. They assumed that Job must be suffering because he'd done something wrong. They assumed that God would never bring such suffering unless it was to correct or to punish sin. And so they ended up tormenting Job with cruel accusations, obscuring God's love from him even more. But praise the Lord, that was not what Megan and I experienced when we lost our baby Elise last December. At that time, we could see no good reason why God would take her from us. And we still can't. We don't know why he thought it was necessary. Though I have felt a deep sense of assurance that I can trust her to his gracious arms. But all the same, it would have been so easy to feel angry at God during that time. So easy to think he didn't love us, or at least not so much. But somehow I felt a deep, deep assurance of God's love through that time. And one of the reasons was because of how the local church, our church in Enfield, loved us. No one suggested, even for a moment, that God might be teaching us something through it. They never asked if we needed to repent of anything. They just loved us in simple ways. We received so many cards with messages full of sympathy and encouragement to keep trusting God's love for us. They made us evening meals for three or four weeks. They even paid for Elise's funeral expenses and made the arrangements. The pastor was coming around regularly, mostly just to pray with us and share a verse or two in a low-key way. And the church family gave us the space we needed, which was a blessing in itself. But our closest friends were there and ready to sit with us, to put an arm around us, to give us a shoulder to cry on when we needed that not least when we started coming back to church on Sundays. We felt so loved by the church 
and through them we felt the assurance of God's love. I simply want to commend that kind of love to you as a church family, Magdalen Road Church. And I think in doing so, I'm probably teaching Granny to suck eggs, because from all I've learned about MRC so far, that is exactly how you love each other. <laughs> but don't stop, especially in this season where we can't see each other as we normally would. Don't stop. Keep reaching out with text messages or phone calls or knocking on the door or meeting up for a coffee. And if, if you know of someone who seems to be struggling, but who doesn't seem to have any close friends in the church family, why not you be the one who reaches out? Don't assume someone else will do it. And if you're, um, so yeah, keep moving towards those who are suffering in this season. And if you are in the middle of suffering, and if you are struggling to believe that God loves you, I just encourage you to keep opening yourself up to your church family, to your brothers and sisters, as much as you can bear, even if it's only to one or two people. Let their love reassure you of God's love for you in this time. Let their love spur you on to the hope of that glorious day when God will vindicate your trust in him. That day when he will wipe away every tear and lavish praise and glory and honour upon you as he takes you to be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many of us who are longing at this time for that day when Jesus will come. We want it to come soon. But Lord, in the meantime, please would you be impressing upon us by your spirit that deep, that profound assurance of your love for us, even in meaningless suffering. And Heavenly Father, please help us as a church family to keep reaching out, to be your means of the assurance of that love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.